Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Isn't that amazing to know that this gospel wasn't our idea, that we didn't have to sit around and think this thing up and then present it to him and say, I don't know, what do you think about this, God? Would this, would this please you? Would this be okay? That it was his idea. That it was better than what we could have imagined. It's why it takes faith to believe it, because without faith, there's no way that you can get your mind around a God being that good, that loving, that kind, that caring, that self-sacrificing. You, we can't even believe these things apart from faith, and that's why we need faith that he gives us to be able to believe what he says in his word. Like, if the gospel that you believe isn't mind-blowing apart from the fact that there's this thing inside of you that says, I know it sounds crazy, but I believe it, then it might not be the gospel that we find in the Word of God. Like, it's, it's good news, but it's not just good news. Like, there's good news, and then there's the good news. Right? There, there's good news, and then there's the gospel, the good news. The one that made the angels break forth into song when Jesus was born. The one that heaven couldn't hold back. And suddenly there appeared among them a host of heavenly angels singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And saying to the shepherds, peace be with you. Why peace be with you? Because apart from the angels telling them that they could be peaceful, they were probably fearful. Because angels aren't tame little cherubs that float around with harps. They're just not. But that's an amazing thing because as we're following him, they're for us. Don't, like, never get that twisted. Like, the angels don't really care a whole lot about you personally. They care about accomplishing the will of God. And when you are following the Lord, then they are for you. But if you're not following the will of God, they are not for you. When, 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 when uh, Joshua comes to the river and he sees an angel that's standing astride the river, okay, this mighty, huge warrior, and he says, are you for us or against us? The angel says, I'm here to do the will of God. In other words, I'm neither for you or against you until you decide what you're going to do, and then that will make my decision. And if you're going with what God has called you to, if you're doing the will of the Lord, I'll be for you, I'll fight for you, and and I will be the greatest asset that you've ever had in your life when you come into this battle against the enemy because you cannot drive them out apart from me. But if you are not, I will be the greatest adversary. Like, I hear people commanding angels. Like, be real careful with that stuff. We don't command angels. Even Jesus himself said, did you not know I could have asked my father and he would have sent angels? Like, Jesus himself, in all of his being God, was yet so human that he didn't even dare himself to say, don't you know I could call down angels? Don't you know that I could command angels? He said, don't you know I could have asked my father and he would have sent angels? Why? Well, because Hebrews tells us that for a time he made him lower than the angels. They weren't his to command. They didn't do his bidding. They did the bidding of the father. And Jesus said, I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of the father. Someone needed to hear that this morning because I had no intentions of talking about that. I just want to make sure that we don't get into ever get into like Christianese. And I've heard it, I've heard it said, I've heard people say like, I just command angels. And it's like, man, be really careful that you're not presuming something that Jesus himself didn't presume. Be real careful. We're not just saying things because it sounds good. 
or because we heard somebody that we look up to say it. Make sure that we're saying, you know what, I, I, I see in the word where we're, where we're given this authority. I see in the word where we're told to do this. I see in the, word, in the life of Jesus this example set before me. And because of that, I step in faith, not because it sounds good or because I've heard somebody say it. So Jude is, the letter of Jude is, is concluding here, and, and he concludes it by saying, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That, that, that's not like saying one day when you die. That's talking about a present tense reality that we have if we're born again in Christ, that we can stand before him blameless with great joy. Not because of what we've done, not like Paul said, not with a righteousness that I attained on my own, but because of the righteousness of Christ Jesus, which he paid for when he gave his life on a cross and took my sin and became it so that I could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So Jude is saying that right now he is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before the Father with great joy, blameless. So Romans 5.18, I want to talk about an aspect of grace that I, I, haven't, that I know I haven't talked about a lot, but I haven't really heard it talked about a lot. And I think that there's, 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 biblical, uh, there's biblical revelation that points to the need for it as the days progress. So Romans 5.18 says, so, that, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the act of righteousness there resulted the justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many may, were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. You notice it, it says that, that, that it uses the same word to describe the ones who were made sinners as the ones who were made righteous. We've got to be careful that we don't give more power to the fall of Adam than we do to the obedience of Jesus. So are you a universalist in saying that? No, I'm saying that everybody was justified by the blood of Jesus. Everyone. And don't just take one verse. Go through the Bible and see all the verses. See where it says, now we see that God was through Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting their sins against him. And so we beg, as though God himself begs through us, be reconciled to God. What is he saying? Listen, the sin that kept you from being able to be reconciled and have the relationship that you were meant for from the beginning has been dealt with by God. The sin of the world, all that was, all that is, and all that is to come has been completely dealt with on the cross by Jesus. All that is left now is for you to actually be reconciled, to receive, to come back into that re relationship you were created for by grace through faith. It's dealt with. You don't have a sin problem, you have a belief problem. That's why the Spirit of God comes to convict the world of unbelief. It's not my sin that would keep me from standing before him blameless. It's my lack of believing that he paid for, forgave, cleansed, and took it that would keep me from being able to stand before him holy, blameless, upright, and beyond reproach. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, there was never an inequity on the earth of there was too much sin and not enough grace. 
In fact, it says where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. In other words, there was always more grace than there was sin. There was always more answer than there was problem. We have become so problem-focused that we forget that we have an answer that's greater than every problem because Jesus is the answer and every problem is less than Jesus and you are now in Christ who are born again. You belong to him. It's no longer you who lives but Christ that lives in you. See, all this stuff's supposed to make sense, not just sound good on a saying that we hang on our wall. Like, it's supposed to be applicable to our life. Like, it should change the way that we live. It should change the way that we think. It should change the way that we respond. It should change the way we see everything. The lens of our eye has to change because the gospel of Jesus has changed the way that we see. I love that. I really do. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness through to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I, I want to cover the first part of this really quickly. I've, I've preached on this before, so this will be recap for some people. But, but, but Paul adds in there, so, so what are we saying? Should we go on sinning so that grace will abound? Because whenever you preach that, that, that grace is greater than sin, a lot of times what happens is people will get the idea that you're saying, so just keep sinning, don't worry, there's grace. That's not at all what Paul is saying, but he knows that's the thought that people are going to have when people haven't surrendered their life to the lordship of Jesus. Because selfishly, if we haven't denied ourselves and we're still thinking selfishly, we'll start thinking, well, maybe this is my way to do what I want in my own humanistic, wicked, uncleansed heart and, and get away with it and have God stamp his approval on it and feel no guilt because, well, there's grace. And Paul says, listen, let that never be. Heaven forbid that. You shouldn't even think that way. Because what he's, he's saying, listen, why, how could, and he goes on and he talks, and I won't go too far into it, but he says, how would we who have died to sin submit ourselves once again as slaves to it? He's saying, if you've been born again and, it's, and you've died, you've been lowered into death with Jesus in baptism and raised into newness of life, why would you have the thought of, so you're telling me I can just sin because there's grace? That should never even enter the equation. We should be so thankful that this grace came to set us free from sin, not came to allow us to do it and not feel bad about it. Like, come on, we're not trying to find a way to sin and get away with it. We found a way to be free from it. That's so much better. Why? Because that's the answer to a clean conscience. That's the answer to standing before the Lord and coming into his presence boldly in our time of need to obtain mercy and grace. Why? Because we're not grayed out and living in a way where we're seeing how close we can get to the line without stepping over it. We're seeing how close we can get to Jesus. I was talking to our youth this week. That's why I said, I said, listen, guys, Christianity is not about how close to this line, this imaginary line that I've drawn, that I've drawn, how close can I get to this line? How much can I do with my boyfriend or girlfriend before it's sin? How many sips could I take before I'm drunk? How much could I eat before it's gluttony? Uh-oh. Fill in the blank. That was never supposed to be the goal. It was never supposed to be. How much can I look like people who Jesus isn't their Lord and still claim that he's mine? It was supposed to be, how much can I be transformed into his image here and now while I'm on the earth? Not how sarcastic and biting can my comments be without being sin. 
Lord. <laughs> Not how much can I act like the world but still claim to not be of it. The goal of our salvation is to be transformed and become a living expression of the love of God on the earth so that men would see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Not see your compromised but not quite sin deeds. I'm not saying this to be harsh. I'm saying that, like, if you're wanting to live there, it's not because you're, you're a, a bad person as much as you have bad belief, you have bad thinking, you haven't seen what's possible, you haven't tasted and seen the joy that's found in freedom where it's like, man, I could go there if I wanted to because Paul said to me, all things are permissible, yet not all things are beneficial. So it's like, you know what, I probably could straddle that line if I wanted to, but why would I want to? There's no benefit in that, and I've been set free from that, so why wouldn't I, my battle be, how close can I get to this line that is Jesus? I promise you, if you're shooting for Jesus, wherever you hit is a whole lot closer than if you're shooting for how close can I come to living like I'm not born again but be born again. If the goal and aim of our life is how much can I become like him rather than how much can I claim that I've become like him but still live the way that I used to, guess which one's going to come a whole lot closer to looking like Jesus? That's what Paul said. He said, not that I've fully attained it yet, but this one thing I do, letting go of what's behind, forgetting what's behind me, forgetting what's behind me. Was he saying forgetting everything? No, he's saying forgetting anything that wasn't him. Forgetting any part of my life that didn't bear the fruit that he intended for me to bear. Never thinking about those times apart from the redemptive value that the testimony brings when I talk about what he brought me out of. Forgetting that what lies behind. I press forward to the high mark of the calling that I might attain that, that I might apprehend that which has apprehended me that I might become like the one who became like me, that I might fully live in what he paid for, rather than saying, thank you for paying for all of this, I just want a little bit. And so Paul addresses that, says, heaven forbid. Grace is not just for him to come and pick you up when you stumble. Like sometimes we have this idea, if we're not careful, that, well, great, you know, there's grace, you know, and there is grace. Listen, if, you, if, if, if in your following Jesus, for some reason, your eye gets off of him and you head down a path you weren't meant to head down or you stub your toe or you do any of those things, you fall, you willfully, you, you without realizing it, or maybe you, you, know, you, you just responded in a moment to something, if any of those things happen, there's grace. There's no reason to stay there. He will come, and he is the lifter of your head. He is the one who will pick you up every single time you stumble. But more than that, he would love to be the one who keeps you from stumbling stumbling. More than that, he would love to be the one that, that keeps from having to come and pick you up because he's picked you up and put your feet on solid ground. And, and, and so if we believe that, that would explain what we read about Jesus. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is without sin, yet full of grace. 
Grace can't just be talking about forgiveness of sin. Luke 2.39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. He had God's grace on him, yet he was without sin. So maybe God's grace wasn't just to, to forgive sin, but maybe it was the answer to sin and the ability to live the life that he intended for him to live. So maybe grace is empowering us into this life that we see modeled by Jesus. It's not the excuse and the answer for not doing it. Maybe it's not a way to not live like him and feel okay. Maybe it's a way to actually have our life transformed and empowered so that we live the way that we're called in a manner worthy of our calling. Well, all this is in your Bible. Every single one of these things that I'm saying comes straight from his word. He would never call us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling if it was impossible for us to do so. Why? He's not a frustrating father. He commanded us not to frustrate our children by putting things on them that are demands they can't keep. Well, if he's asking that of us as earthly fathers, I wonder where that character and nature comes from. So if he's telling us not to be frustrating, he's probably not a frustrating father either. That's requiring things of his children that are utterly impossible. On our own, they are utterly impossible. That's why we're never on our own. That's why we need the grace of God to empower us to live the life that he created us to live. All right. But the part that I was really thinking about over the past, it's probably been over the past couple months that I've been just kind of, chewing on this idea, and it's, it's gone through. I thought I had a bunch of different messages when talking about this, and I was ready to preach them, and then I didn't, and it kept changing a little bit. But, but part of this is, is because when I, when I meet with people, and, and if you're someone that I've met with, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about the other person. But, but, <laughs> but I feel like we're seeing what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 come to happen. It says, because of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. He says, because of wickedness, and I don't think that wickedness always means wickedness within them. In fact, I think a lot of times it's meaning because of the wickedness that's increasing in the world, because of the things that are being done to us, it causes our love to grow cold because we take what happens to us personally and we don't respond the way that Jesus would respond. And so if you don't respond in a heart of love, you'll respond by shutting your heart down and keeping it from, from responding in love by becoming cold because I don't want to be hurt again. And the way that I don't get hurt again is to shut down that part of my heart so that I never feel this way again. I don't want to feel this way and rather than questioning our feelings we shut down our heart rather than asking ourselves why do I feel this way we instead shut our heart down so that I never feel that way again because if I'm being honest the goal of my life is not so much to become like him to where that could happen to me and I could respond like he responded the goal of my life is to never feel that feeling that that caused and so I'll cut people out of my life Because if I don't have to see them and I don't talk to them, then there's no chance that they can do that again. I'm not saying that it's, it's not okay to remove yourself from some people's lives. What I am saying is if you're doing it out of hurt and offense and the only way that you can be okay is to not see them, you need to get alone with the Lord and ask him, why is that? Why is the answer to that not me being brokenhearted for them and being able to respond in love? Why is the only way that I can actually be okay is to remove that from my life? Don't look at me with that tone of voice. 
I told you, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about them. And I was thinking about how that grace upon his life that, yes, empowered him to live without sin, as in when he was led by, the, by the, the Spirit of God out into the wilderness, and then he was tempted by the enemy. Remember, every time the enemy comes and tempts him, he responds with the Word of God. He doesn't give what the devil is saying place, except for to consider what is being said and evaluate it against the Word of God, and then respond with the Word of God that defeats the offer of the enemy. Come on, that's how we deal with temptation. It, it's not to say, no, 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 no. You, you, listen, you already heard it. The reason you turned your head and said no is because you heard that voice. But it's also not to bargain with that voice. It's to take what's being said, what's being felt, what's being thought, what's being presented, and take it to the word of God and say, does this line up? If it doesn't and the word of God speaks directly against it, I don't have to try to come up with my own answer. I have the answer, and that's what I answer with. So he comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I know you're hungry. It's been 40 days. You've been fasting. That's longer than anybody else um, in the New Testament ever, ever went without food, and all you had was water. And so he says it's, it, he came to the end of the 40 days, and he was hungry. In other words, there was a feeling there, and the enemy came to play off of a feeling. It's a good thing he doesn't do that anymore, but you can imagine with Jesus... He thought, well, there's a feeling there, so I'll come and I'll play off that feeling and I'll try to get him to step out of the will of God for his life because of the feeling that he has and respond to what I'm offering him because it makes that feeling better. So it says, and Jesus felt hungry. Notice on day 39, before Jesus felt hungry, the enemy didn't come to him and offer him bread. On day 36, he didn't come to him and offer him and try to get him to turn stones into bread. Why? Because on day 36, it doesn't say, and Jesus felt hungry. But on day 40, he felt hungry. You know why he felt hungry? Because it was almost time to eat. Because he was in the 40th day and he just had a little while to go. Listen, don't throw away Everything you've walked through in obedience because you get this feeling that starts to come right towards the end when you're almost there and the enemy comes and tries to play off of it. He's been 40 days and he's hungry. And the enemy comes and says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Jesus hears what's being said. He doesn't offer purple milk hamburger. Right? He doesn't say back to him something that completely makes no sense with what's being offered. Like I think sometimes we think that being tempted is sin. Being tempted isn't sin. It's what we do with that that leads to sin. Jesus hears what's being said. He hears the temptation in it. It plays off of a real feeling that he has. And listen, that feeling of hunger was actually something that God created him to feel. Not all feelings are evil. Just make sure that they're the feelings that God created you to feel and not the ones that Adam gave you in the fall. So here's a natural bodily function, feeling hunger, that God created his body to feel, and the enemy comes and tries to play off of that. And Jesus just responds to him and says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. What's he do? He gives him the answer to the temptation. I'm living right now by what my father spoke, which was to not eat for 40 days. He said, I only do the things I see the father doing. These words I speak are not my own, but my father who's in heaven. So Jesus wasn't like just randomly like, 
oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a 40-day fast. I don't know, 40 seems cool. I think Moses did it. I'll, I'll, I'm supposed to be, you know, at least as great as him, so I'll go out and do 40 days and prove to everybody. No, it says he was led by the Spirit to fast in the wilderness for 40 days. So he's living off of a word from the Father. Just make sure that when you're living on something that he spoke to you, that you don't give in to a voice that actually confirms a feeling that you're having. So a lot of people will do that. They have a word from the Lord, and they're living by that word from the Lord, and then all of a sudden this feeling arises, and another voice comes and plays off of that feeling, and it's very easy to want to listen to that voice and decide, well, you know, technically it's been 40 days. I know I'm not to the end of the time yet, but I mean, who does God really care about a few more hours? I went 40 days. It's just not the end of the day yet, so the day hasn't ended, but I mean, he never said I had to go to the end of the 40th day. I think he just said 40 days. No, you set out in your heart to do something something, you knew what the Lord spoke to you, now that a feeling has come and the enemy comes to try to play off of that, don't turn your back on what God spoke and give in just because it would feel good to do so or it would please your flesh to do so. And so Jesus responds to him and says, I'm not living by the bread, I'm living by the word of the Father. And so the grace that was on his life, I believe, was fully for that. And that grace that's on our life is fully for that. So that when the enemy comes and tries to play off of your feelings, tries to play off. Listen, it is no, like, it is not a coincidence when you're feeling a certain way. Just say you're feeling insecure about something. And all of a sudden, a comment gets made in front of you to somebody else about how amazing they did something. I'll just take me for example, right? Like if I was feeling insecure because I just felt like, man, I kind of stumbled over my words and I'm not sure if, if, I, if I did a great job of communicating what was in my heart. And then someone comes up and right in front of me says to somebody, another pastor, hey man, that was the best message I've ever heard in my life. All of a sudden, rather than being thankful that that guy was blessed by that guy's message, I see it as a reflection on me and, and it plays off of my insecurity and suddenly I'm thinking all these things I shouldn't think rather than actually being thankful for the fact that this guy was blessed by that guy's message. But I also think that one of the greatest reasons for all that grace on his life was so that he could respond every time he was sinned against without being changed by the sin and respond in love. Look in Titus chapter 2. He gives us a great definition of what the grace of God came for. Titus chapter 2 verse 11, if you don't have it, it will be on the screen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Do you realize, like, like, when he talks about the grace of God appearing, it came to save men, but it also came, like, like salvation in its totality, right? And he says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That grace didn't appear so that I could be saved one day. Grace appeared so that I could be saved today and I would continue living in that salvation for eternity. That I could become united with God once again, one with him. He and me, I and him, the spirit of God living in me and relationship with him now and I'll continue that relationship forever. But the first thing he talks about when he talks about the, the grace of God that appeared is that it instructed us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteous and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us 
for every lawless deed. And here he talks about the, the return of Jesus and the glory of that. And he talks about that, that that's part of why grace appeared. And that's amazing. And honestly, the older I get, the more I, I'm like looking forward to heaven. Like the older I get, the more I'm like, man, I just can't wait to be there with him. I can't wait to get there and, 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 and see Jesus and see the Father and, and experience what it's like to stand in his presence completely perfect and set free from anything that would try to attack, anything that would try to come in between and cause separation, to just physically stand in the presence of God and see him face to face, physically. Because I've seen him, but I haven't seen him. Like I know him, but I don't fully know him yet. Paul says, now in part, then fully. And so as amazing as, as heaven's going to be, and he talks about that, he goes right back into who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. To redeem us from every lawless deed. And, and I, I think that sometimes when we teach on grace, rightfully so, we talk about the forgiveness of the lawless deeds that we committed, how he'll forgive our sins and remember them no more. How they're lost in the sea of forgetfulness, separated far from him as the east is from the west. And that is all true. And that is all important. But what about the fact that we've been set free from every lawless deed that's ever been done against us? What about him setting us free from anything that anybody has done to us so that we don't become a product of what people have done to us? We are the product of what he's done for us. What if we need grace actually to empower us to respond in love and to see the way that he sees when sins are committed against us, when lawless deeds are done to us. Because here's the truth. Every time you step out of your house in the morning and you step out into the world, there's a very real chance that you're going to encounter something that somebody's going to do that is going to be a lawless deed done against you. People will betray you. People will deceive you. People will mistreat you. They'll speak ill of you with no reason at all. And it says that in the, in the last days that wickedness is going to increase, meaning what? That in the last days, there's going to be more of that, not less of that in the world. Meaning what? You're going to have more opportunity to be offended. There's going to be more lawless deeds being committed as wickedness increases. But at the same time as the wickedness is increasing, so is the grace of God is abounding even more so that you can be fully equipped to handle anything that comes to you so that you're not changed by it, but so that possibly through your response, the person, the situation, whatever it is, could be transformed by the gospel and by the grace that you carry. not going to get to all that. Oh, maybe I will. I don't know which timer I'm supposed to be looking at. There's two back there. One says a minute 51, one says 11.27. I'm just going to go by faith on the 11.27. And so here's the part that I've been really chewing on for the past couple months, and I've actually talked to some of the people that I've been talking that are walking through things about this. 
James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials and temptations, knowing. Why do we and how can we consider it joy when we encounter all these trials in life? Because we know something. Because we know something. He says, knowing this. Well, if I don't know this, then I'm not going to find joy in in the trials that I face. In fact, I'm going to think that joy is on the other side of the trial. And if God would just get me through this trial, then I would have joy. Because certainly right now, while this is going on, it's no time for me to have joy. But one day, when this trial ends... It, and, and maybe that's the one day in the sweet by and by. If it never ends here on earth, I don't know. But then I'll have joy. And James is saying, no, you can have joy right now because you know something. The word consider there is a decision, not a feeling. James doesn't say feel joy when you face various trials. In fact, you probably won't feel joy when someone betrays you when someone mistreats you when someone speaks ill of you when somebody steals from you when somebody slanders you if you're living by your feelings in that moment there's no chance it's leading you to joy so James says consider that word there means to lead or command with authority to consider or give account, to govern or to judge. James says, listen, you have the authority. To decide where this is going to lead me. To lead or to govern with authority. I have the authority to decide what this trial is going to lead me into. Is it going to lead me into despair, anxiety, fear, anger, bitterness, jealousy, insecurity? Hatred, is it going to lead me into any of those places? Or am I going to allow this to lead me into joy because of what I know? Because I know something that the world doesn't. What do I know? Oh, I wrote this down. I want, I want to read it. The only one that has the authority to decide this is you. No one else can make that decision for you. You've been given the authority to judge, to consider and to count, to make a decision that this is going to lead me into joy. Why? Because of what I know. I know this. I know that it's a test of my faith. It says when you face many trials and testing of your faith, this isn't personal. I'm not going to take this personally, and I'm certainly not going to take the person personally. I'm going to see it for what it is. It's a demonic attack on the kingdom of heaven within me, and it's coming to test my faith. Not my faith in me, my faith in him. It comes not to test my faith. Sometimes I think our faith is in our faith. No, our faith is in him, that he is faithful. Even if I'm faithless, he's faithful.
Do I trust in him to keep me? Do I trust his power to transform me? Do I trust that he's working all things for my good? Not that he's causing all things, but that he's working all things for my good. Do I really believe that? Because this trial, this test is coming to test that. And my response is, 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 is the result of that test. And if my res- response doesn't look like Jesus, then this trial isn't going to lead me into joy until I allow whatever it is that's rising up in me that doesn't look like him to be worked out of me and to be purified. So here's what I do. When something happens to me, I see what that produces in my heart. Honestly. Not uh, what do I want people to think it produces in my heart. Not a what would look good. Not what would a pastor do. Not what do I want people to think that I do. I'm not just going to say something that doesn't actually hold truth because it's not what I'm actually experiencing in my heart. By being honest before the Lord and saying, why? Why would I happen? Why when this happened, did I get so angry? Did I get so jealous? Did I get so insecure? Did I become so anxious? Did I feel hatred? Did I want to respond in anything other than the way that you responded to me when I did far worse? See, this is how, because on the other side of this, James says, knowing that perseverance produces patience, and patience, when it has completed its work in you, makes you complete and lacking nothing. This is how we're actually transformed by the things that we go through and come out the other side of that trial more like Jesus. The Bible says complete and lacking nothing because of the trials that we've gone through. But here's the thing. It only does that if I actually make a conscious decision that I'm going to find joy in this moment because I know that this is testing my faith. And I know that if there's something coming up in me that I can't find in the life of Jesus, that it's something he's wanting to deal with and he's using this trial. Not that he caused this trial. There's many trials in life that he didn't cause, but he'll use every one to work them for our good because we love him and are called according to his purpose. So it starts with me being honest and saying, okay, you know what, right now I'm not considering this joy. Why not? There's something I don't see. There's something that I don't really know. And I have to look at, is this feeling that's trying to dictate my life something that he calls evil? Is it anger or wrath or malice, which I've been told to put away because I've put on Christ? Come on, if wrath, malice, and anger are rising up in me when somebody does something to me or when I face a trial, that's not okay. That's not okay. It doesn't condemn me, but it certainly isn't okay to stay there and say, well, that's just the way I am. Is it anxiety, which Jesus told us to be anxious over nothing? Is it jealousy or insecurity, which the Bible calls an act of the flesh? Is it love? 
Is it patient and kind? Is it not self-seeking? Is it not keeping record of wrong? Because if I'm not in love, I can't be in faith. Because faith, working through love, is the only thing that matters according to Galatians 5. And if, I don't, if I'm not in love, then there's no faith. And if there's no faith, there's nothing for grace to work through because grace works through faith. So I have to start at this place and say, when I'm going through this, when I'm being tested, listen, like all of our problems are the worst because they're ours. If we all took our problems and threw them into the middle of the room, you would run and get yours when you saw some of the problems other people are facing. I, I promise you. We have no idea the things that people around us are having to deal with. Every one of us thinks the thing that we're dealing with is the worst because it's ours. But when I'm walking through this, I have an example. His name is Jesus. So how did Jesus respond when he was betrayed? How does he respond when he knows that there's someone there who, for 30 pieces of silver, is going to hand him over to be killed? He humbles himself, gets down on his knees, and washes his feet, even while the devil's in his heart. He points that out in the scripture. It says, and Jesus, knowing the devil had already entered in. So Jesus knows the devil's entered in his heart. He knows that Judas has made a place for the enemy in his heart. He knows that Judas is acting out of the control of the enemy and has, has sold himself over and opened himself up to evil. And even then, Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to wash everyone's feet but yours, Judas. What does he do? I know what you're going to do. And I know why you're going to do it. I'm not going to let that change me. Because if it changes me, then I can't change you. Washes his feet. I knew that was going to happen. How does he respond when people speak ill of him and revile him? It says, while, re while being reviled, he didn't revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Look, if, if when the, I go through trials, these things come up in me, it's, it's okay for me to see them. It's not okay for me to give them permission to stay. Because otherwise, I'm going to have to go through another trial. Because the Lord is committed to completing and perfecting me. And so if I find myself going through the same trial over and over again, rather than getting frustrated with people, I probably should ask myself, what is it in me that the Lord is trying to perfect? What is it in me that the Lord is wanting to work out? What is it in me that needs to be changed? Let the Lord deal with them. That's, that's, that's their business. The Lord can deal with them. But what can I, and how, that's how I can consider it joy, because I can say, okay, Father, you know what? I didn't choose this. Jesus said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from before me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So for the joy set before him, he endured the pain of the cross. In other words, I'm not choosing this way, but you've brought me to this place. Life has brought me to this place. The enemy has brought them, them to this place. And so rather than what I want, I'm going to submit myself to you because of the joy that's set before me. So, Father, I wouldn't pick to be here, but I'm here. And I know this, on the other side of this, I'm gonna either look more like Jesus or I'm gonna look a lot like me. I'm gonna either look the same or I'm gonna be changed. 
And the only one that has the authority to decide to see the joy in it is me. The only one that can lead me into that is the Spirit of God by me surrendering to him and yielding and asking him, what is it in me? Why? Why do I react that way? Why do I respond that way? Why does that rise up in me? Why is that there? Why is that a temptation? And then be honest and get alone before the Lord and let him deal with your heart so that truth can come and so that we can be healed so that we can be complete and lacking nothing. All right, I'm gonna, next week, I, I'm, I promise I'm gonna get to the rest of it. My wife's nodding her head because she knows there's, there's stuff we have to do. So real quickly, I'm just gonna pray for us and then we have just some announcements to make real quick and some praying to do. First of all, if the first part of the message really spoke to you and, and, and the idea of grace empowering us not to see how close we can come and get away with it, but to see how much we can be transformed into the image of Jesus, if, if that really spoke something to you, if that was challenging, if the Lord was saying, listen, my grace didn't come to make you comfortable in sin, my grace came to transform you and empower you to live above it. I just wanna pray for you right now that, that you would get a, a picture of the joy that's found living in holiness, living in purity, that, that, that living with a clean conscience and, and not living in compromise. I'm not saying perfection. I'm saying I'm not willfully giving myself to anything that I know that he died for me to be set free from. I'm not living in compromise, seeing how close I can come to this thing without calling it the thing. I'm seeing how much can I live close to Jesus so that I can be transformed to him. I flee from those things. Things. Why? Because I don't want any part of them. Even if it wasn't sin, technically for me, it probably was because it didn't look like something I was doing by faith and whatever's not done in faith is sin. So I'm just praying right now that you would get just a, a heart of hunger for the purity and the joy that's found in every day following Jesus, being led by his spirit, with our goal being becoming like him being transformed into his image that God would stir up a hunger for that and a desire for that in you the second thing would be if, if, if the second half where it's talking about how the wickedness is going to increase and because of that the love of many is going to grow cold if you felt like your heart's gotten into a place of being cold, even in an area, listen, it's not going to stay there. It's going to spread. You can't isolate it. You can't say, well, I'm going to get cold and shut off in this area, but I'm going to keep my heart open in that area. It will spread and it will grow because a little bit of yeast leavens the whole lump. A little bit of offense, a little bit of a root of bitterness will soon spread and it will infect everything. And if that's you, just know that there's grace for you to be set free from every lawless deed. That means ransomed and loosened from every lawless deed, both from, from the lawless deeds that you committed, that you've been forgiven as you've repented to him for, but also from the lawless deeds that ensnared you, that others did to you, that had you held captive, that, held, that, that were shaping you and pottering you and making you a victim of them and were, were making you the, the, the response of your life shaped more by what they've done to you than the grace of God by what Jesus became for you. If that's you, I just want to pray right now that, that you would receive that grace that appeared to loosen us and set us free and ransom us from every lawless deed, both the ones you've done, but also the ones done to you. 
that you wouldn't be shaped anymore by offense and hurt and bitterness. That you would allow the love of God to come and fill that place so that you can respond genuinely and truthfully like Jesus. They said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But then there were times that people knew exactly what they were doing. And Jesus forgave them too. So whether they knew that they were harming you or didn't know that they were harming you, there's grace for you to respond in love and forgiveness and to be set free from that lawless deed so that it no longer has a voice, it no longer shapes you, and it's no longer determining your disposition. And number three, if you're in a trial right now, listen, you're either, you're either heading into one, you're in one, or you're coming out of one. That's the human condition. That's living in a fallen world, I promise you. No one's exempt. And if that's you, and right now you're in the middle of a trial, I just want to encourage you, you have the authority to choose. To judge and to see and to make a decision, not a feeling, but a decision that I'm going to find the joy in this. Because I know that if I stay open before the Lord, I stay humble before him, that this thing that was meant to destroy me actually is going to refine me. And I'll look more like Jesus. Because I'll let whatever's in me that needs to come up, come up. So that it can be pulled out and purified. So that through the heat that this trial's caused, my heart would be softened. Things would come to the surface. And I would let the word of God speak. And then by faith, believe it. And watch the grace come by faith. But it all starts with having my heart in a place of love. That I'll stay kind, I'll stay patient. I won't be self-seeking. I won't be keeping a record of wrong. I won't let this be another reason why I'm not okay. I'll let this be the reason that I'm getting transformed more into the image of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for doing that. Thank you for your grace that empowers us and sets us free, forgives, strengthens. Father, I'm just asking that we would live in the reality that it's wickedness. If we would say that wickedness is increasing, God, that we would be more aware of the answer that's increasing within us than the problem that's increasing in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.